How come the piano is shaking? All right, well, this morning we are going to uh, go back to, we're trying to finish this series on angels and demons, but it's just not happening as fast as we thought it was. But uh, if I were to ask you this question, who is Lucifer? You would probably say Lucifer is Satan or the devil. Yeah, okay. If I were to ask you this, finish this sentence, the five I wills of Satan. Okay, good. How about this? Satan was cast down to earth. Okay, good. Um, Here's another one. Satan was the anointed or covering cherub. See, you guys are just in the groove. Um, The first service, I don't know if they're sleeping or they're just the younger, less informed people um, or the less responsive people. But uh, yeah, the cherub is the correct answer. You've probably also, uh, if you've done much reading and books and magazines in the Christian sphere, or probably read articles or books or maybe heard people talk about Christians being demon-possessed and, uh, you know, being controlled by demons, uh, you know, demons inside of them. They, they, they can't seem to get control of their life and needing those demons to be cast out. And you know what? You have to ask yourself, why, why are things like this taught? Well, they're taught because of two basic reasons. First, people misinterpret the scriptures. Or second, they ignore the scriptures altogether and base what they believe on their experience. Now, if you've been here, uh, you know, in the last couple months, uh, you've noticed that we've gotten to Luke chapter 8, and there was the text, the Gerizim Demonic, which I can't wait to get to, because it's a really great text. But uh, as I got there, I thought, you know, we should probably just do a little series here on angels and demons, so that people can understand what the Bible teaches about the angelic realm, about demons, Satan, and just how they play a part in our lives. And so we've kind of addressed those issues. And this morning we're kind of going to do uh, just some real odd, two odd topics. And uh, the reason is, is uh, as I thought, as I was talking to people, um, people kept bringing certain issues up and I didn't really want to preach on them, but I realized, no, I need to do this because a lot of people are asking questions about it. So this morning is kind of a, a fill in the gap sermon on a couple just uh, strange topics. Uh, one of them doesn't really even have that much importance, um, but uh, I think it is important to look at just because it's in the Word of God. It's important to understand the Word of God, and hopefully there'll be some blessing in the process. Now, if you remember when Paul went to Thessalonica, it says at the beginning of Acts chapter 17 that he went there and he was persecuted. He and Silas were persecuted. And so they then left Thessalonica and went to Berea. And Luke, who wrote the gospel of Acts, tells us this in Acts 17, 10 through 11. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Luke describes them as more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, the people at Berea, for two reasons. One, they received what Paul was saying with great eagerness. And secondly, everything Paul said, they examined it by the text of Scripture to see whether it was so. And you know what? You and I need to be Bereans. 
We need to be Bereans. Most of us probably are aware or familiar with the text in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul speaking to Timothy and to all Christians that we need to be diligent to present ourselves as approved to God workmen who do not need to be ashamed, who handle accurately the word of truth. In other words, we need to handle, literally the Greek says, with precision, we need to cut it straight so that we don't misrepresent God's word. Now, you probably know this, um, when anybody comes up here to preach, any of the guys come up to preach, you know, we don't just sit in the pew on Sunday morning and right before we're supposed to come up here and think, okay, what am I going to preach on next? And then walk up here and look in here and just kind of do the gift of gab thing. No, there's quite a bit of study that goes on behind the scenes. Um, uh, we have some training and interpretation and exegesis and languages and how to go about getting the goodies out of the Bible. And so we spend quite a few hours trying to get all this information. Then once we get all this information and we kind of find out what a text says and what it means, we, we then begin to synthesize it and distill it down and illustrate it and streamline it and try to make it as as clear as we can so that we can give it to you, you know, in a little short time period. But just so you know, there's always a lot more that goes into a a sermon than just what you hear. You just kind of hear the end of it all. It's kind of like going to a nice uh, bakery and they have one of these really exotic cakes there. Well, I just want you to know, that cake just didn't come out of a box that way. Um, there's a baker back there who has some training, he has some skill, he has ingredients, he has tools, and he has labor to put that cake together. You just show up and get the end product. Well, this morning, I want to kind of bring you in on the preparation of studying the Bible, because what we're going to do is we're going to look at two issues that I think have been grossly misunderstood by many Christians and and see what the scriptures say. Now, I could just give you the end product, but that wouldn't be very satisfying to you in a case like this. You're going to want to know how. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two dishes. Of course, uh, the ingredients always need to come from the word of God, so we need to look at that. But the two dishes we're going to see if the scriptures can produce are, can we get satanic soup from Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14? And can we make demon stuffed Christian pie from the New Testament? Okay, those are going to be our two dishes. We're going to see if we can, can validly say that Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah teach in a couple of these texts that Satan is actually there and being talked about. And then we're going to talk about uh, demon-stuffed Christian pie. That is, can Christians be demon-possessed? So, first we want to talk about, uh, can you make satanic soup from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14? Now turn to Isaiah 14, and I want you to know, we're just going to just read this and move right into Ezekiel, and I'll tell you why in a second. I turn to, to Isaiah chapter 14, and look at verse 12, don't look at the context, that would ruin everything. <laughs> look at Isaiah 14, verse 12. 
how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. And everybody knows this is referring to the king of Babylon. You're thinking, well, are you sure? If you have the King James where it says star of the morning there, it says Lucifer. That's where they get that that uh, title. Lucifer means shining one. Actually, it's star of the morning. And uh, it just so happens to be that Jesus is the star of the morning. The star of the morning is when the sun starts to come up and the sky begins to get light. What happens is the dimmest stars begin to fade first. And the last and brightest star is the bright morning star. The brightest, most preeminent one. Now, when you look at this, it can be seen, for instance, from Isaiah 14, 12, uh, and on down, there's a reference uh, to someone falling from heaven, someone who has weakened the nations, someone is being so proud to think that they were God, uh, someone needing to be thrust down to shield to the very recesses of the pit. And uh, if you... Look at this text, divorced from its context. Many have interpreted as literally referring to Satan. We also see the five I wills here. We all have heard the five I wills of Satan. Yet the context in Isaiah 13.1 and 13.19 and 14.4 and 14.22 all say the king of Babylon is in view. Besides, the Bible says that Satan is still has access to heaven. He is the leader of the world forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And in Revelation 12, he's still in heaven and he gets cast down then to earth. So the question is, is does Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15 refer to Satan or not? I just want you to know, I don't think so. I am quite certain it does not. Now, when you, I know when you hear me say that, you go, <laughs> some of you. But my, Bible, my study Bible says right here by famous pastor, theologian, so-and-so, I just want you to know, I, I realize this. I, there's a lot of godly guys, a lot of great theologians uh, that disagree with me on this. And there's a lot of them who are right, though. Um, but what, but what I want to do is, is I want to, I want you to look at Ezekiel 28. Now I just mentioned Isaiah because that this is the weakest of the two texts. What we're going to do is we're going to tackle the big bad text, which seems to be really explicit, which is Ezekiel 28. So if you have your Bible now turn to Ezekiel 28, and we're going to kind of show you how you might work through this passage to see whether or not it refers to Satan. And I'm going to show you why I don't think it refers to Satan because you cannot apply uh, just standard Bible study principles to this text and come away saying it does. 
So let's look and see uh, what Ezekiel 28 says, starting in the middle of verse 11, because the first part of verse 11 kind of ruins it. So we'll just look at the middle of verse 11 again, ignoring that near context for the moment. This says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until the unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. For your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by the reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And we'll just leave the end of the verse off. Okay, there it is. Now, almost all study Bibles, about half the commentaries you might read, you come to this passage and say, well, this is talking about Satan here. Actually, there's three views. These are the three views that people take concerning this passage. The not very popular view is that the passage, these two passages, actually this one and Isaiah 14, refer to Satan exclusively. That means they only refer to Satan. Second view is, yes, it refers to Satan, but only secondarily, or what is called typologically, or indirectly, To the king of Tyre. Now, I hate to do this to you because I know there's, I I don't like jargon. You know, I I purposely try and stay away from, you know, super lapsarianism. Because I know when I say that, I see everybody kind of instantly fall asleep uh, when I use words like that. But we need to talk about some terms here. We need to talk about what a type is, an Old Testament type. When I say, view two sees Satan as typologically uh, referring to the king of Tyre, the king of Tyre, typologically referring to Satan. In the Old Testament, there are things called types. And this isn't too hard. You can understand this. I'll give you an example. And a type is something such as the bronze serpent that is spoken of in Numbers chapter 21. If you remember what happened, the people sinned. God sent fiery serpents among them. They were bitten. They are all starting to die. They cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to God. God says, okay, make a bronze serpent, set it up in a pole, lift it up there so that the medical profession today will have a symbol. Um, and so that anybody who looks on the bronze serpent will then be healed of their mortal and physical uh, problem, their sickness from being bit by these serpents. Well, it just so happens in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Jesus is speaking, speaking to Nicodemus and he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the whole point is this. 
The people in the Old Testament were physically ill, looked at the serpent, and were healed physically. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the cross, crucified. Those who look to him for salvation will be healed spiritually. So Christ is the ultimate or greater fulfillment of the Old Testament type. The thing in the Old Testament is called the type, and the New Testament thing is the antitype. Okay, now if you think, well, I, 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 okay, um, <laughs> all right. So view two is saying that the king of Tyre is a type and that Satan is the greater and ultimate fulfillment or the antitype. Then there's a third view. The third view says that this text does not refer to Satan either directly or indirectly. That's my view. I think that's the correct view. Well, why would I say that? Well, it doesn't mean if you take view through uh, view three that you don't mean Satan has nothing to do with the passage. We know that all unbelievers are of their father, the devil. They do the works of their father and Satan is working in the sons of disobedience. So, of course, that would be true of the king of Tyre as well. But what it does mean is that this text has no literal fulfillment to Satan's fall in history, you know, before Genesis three. And that we should not go to this passage to form our doctrine of Satan. Because it does not refer to him directly or secondarily or even typologically. Now, if you've gone to a Bible study class, if you have gone to one of my how to prepare Bible studies and sermons or how to study the Bible classes or another one or read a book on what a big fancy field called hermeneutics, which means, you know, principles for studying the Bible, you know that the king of all Bible study principles is what? Context, man. Context is king. Um, Everybody knows that. And it's king because the meaning of a passage is primarily determined upon its near context. Then from there you can go out to far context. It's surrounding chapters. Then you can go to the context of the whole book. Then you can go to all the other books written by the same author, then maybe to the whole Testament, then to the whole Bible. So you kind of have these spheres of context. But the most important, the most authoritative is the near context. In other words, out of all the principles you might use to study the Bible, the one you put the most weight in is context. Now there's an exception. The exception is, is if you have an Old Testament text that is interpreted by a New Testament Author, And then you have an inspired interpretation, and that's what it means, <laughs> because it says so. All right, Ezekiel 26, the kind of far context of Ezekiel 28, talks about Tyre's destruction. Ezekiel 26, 7 is a, a lament over Tyre's demise. And then in Ezekiel 28 is a prediction of the king's ruin and judgment. Now, it can be easily seen that the king of Tyre and his kingdom are in view. How do you know that? Well, all you have to do is look at the context and you can see in Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 2, 3, 4, 7, and 15, and Ezekiel 27, 2, 3, 8, and 32, and Ezekiel 28, 2, and 12, that it's speaking of the king of Tyre and his kingdom. That That is about as much near context proof that you could possibly conjure up. 
You could also add to this the fact that in Ezekiel 26.2, 27.2, 28.2, and 12, it describes the person being spoken of as a man, not a demon. The overwhelming information from the far and near context tells us that Ezekiel is talking about a man, the king of Tyre. What does this mean? This means that view one is dead. It's dead. I mean, you just can't explain away this mountain of material just because you want this text to refer to Satan. So that leaves us with two views. The two views are, one, that the king of Tyre typifies Satan. That Satan is the ultimate fulfillment or person that is being pictured by the king of Tyre. And view three, that Satan's not in the text at all, directly. Now, let me give you a list of problems that I have with view two. And see, uh, and I want you to know I'm talking about this because during the the series on, on angels and demons, people come up to me and go, hey, how come you haven't talked about Ezekiel 28? You've never quoted that passage. Or, you know, I've been looking and um, are you going to talk about Isaiah 14? I didn't want to. Um, and they're wondering how come I, you know, I'm not extracting a little information from there. Well, I don't think it refers to Satan. That's why. Uh, Oh, and they say, well, why? Well, this is the reason view two. I can't take view two one because it violates the far context, which says the king of Tyre is in view. Satan is never mentioned Two, It violates the near immediate context, which says the king of Tyre is in view. Satan isn't mentioned. Three, it violates the flow of the text. For instance, when this text is quoted as referring to Satan, the first part of verse 12 and the last part of verse 17, and some people think it goes all the way to 19, are conveniently kind of left off. Why? Well, look at the first part of verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him. That kind of puts a damper on the Satan view, doesn't it? Then if you look at verse 17 at the end of the verse, I will put you before kings that they may see you. Who saw Satan fall from heaven? What kings were around then? In Genesis, before Genesis 3-1? Nada. See, that's a problem. This puts a damper on the Satan view. Because the text says the king of Tyre is being discussed. And yes, men did see him judged. He was judged in the sight of men. But not Satan. And if you add verses 18 and 19, then you have to deal with verse 18, which says, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. When did that happen to Satan? If this is talking about Satan's fall, when did that happen to him? That's a problem, isn't it? Or verse 19, or that goes on to say, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Now, has that already happened? All the people are appalled. See, that's a problem, isn't it? That is a problem. Fourth, you have to invent a special kind of, and I hate to throw out this term, I don't know what else to call it, genre. Do you know that term? Some, some of you English teachers are going, I know what that word means. Um, genre just means, you know, in the Bible or in all kinds of literature, you have different kinds of literature. In the Bible, for instance, you have prophecy, you have historical narrative, you have law, you have parables. Those are called different genres or literary types and so in order to make ezekiel 28 and isaiah 14 um though we aren't looking at that directly 
refer to Satan, you have to invent a very special and convoluted literary type. And let me explain what I mean. Let me just ask you a few questions. Ezekiel was what? A prophet. And in this section, Ezekiel is doing what? Prophesying. Oh, that is brilliant. Uh, He is predicting the future. He is telling us what is going to happen to the king of Tyre. And it just so happens he's writing in Hebrew poetry. Most of you probably have Bibles. And you'll notice that um, if you go back to about the middle of Ezekiel 27, in verse 24, it's in block text. And then when you get into halfway into verse 25, all of a sudden it's indented. Well, the reason is that tells you that it has switched from regular prose to Hebrew poetry. So he's not only giving a lament or talking about the demise of the king of Tyre. He's doing it in Hebrew poetry that is also prophecy. Okay, which is not a problem that happens all over the Bible. But if this text refers to Satan's fall from heaven and his judgment before Genesis 3, then what kind of text would this have to be? Historical narrative. Mm. Because it's telling us what already happened in the past. And so what is it? Prophecy or historical narrative? It gets worse. View 2 says the king of Tyre is a type. Now, if you were to get a uh, hermeneutics book or a book that tells you how to study the Bible and you studied up on types, you would learn certain things about types. Types refer to Christ. They have an Old Testament type and a New Testament antitype or fulfillment in Christ. But of course, this would have to be an exception. And so at Isaiah 14, if it refers to Satan, it would be the only two types in the Bible that refer to Satan. And do you see a problem here? There's a huge problem. Why? Because in a type, the type is mentioned, and then in the New Testament, the antitype is given. But if this is talking about Satan's fall, the antitype was given, and then the type. It's backwards. Not only does it not refer to Christ, not have a New Testament fulfillment, the antitype came before the type. I don't know about you, I have a problem with that. That is a problem. That is, uh, that's beyond what I can swallow. I just want to put my fingers in my ear and go, la, la, la. (laughs) I can't do that one. Now, if Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 refer to Satan, there would have to be a kind of poetry which is typological, but not referring to Christ, not having a type given before the antitype, not having a New Testament fulfillment. It would have to be a prophetic passage predicting the future and at the same time be historical narrative telling us what happened in the past. And you know what? I don't think that kind of passage exists. That sounds schizophrenic to me. But you know what? If you take view two, you got to believe that. You got to believe that. It's the only way it works. Unless you think it's the Satan only view, and then you have this huge contextual mountain to explain away. So you see, these things just can't be. If this text is telling us about the events of the past, when Satan was judged, it can't be telling us about the future and what's going to happen. On two different weird planes. Fifth, there is nothing in the text, if you look in verse 11, um, when it says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then verse 12, son of man, take up a lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says, 
right there between him and thus says the Lord God, you have to just assume that it's now talking about Satan. For what reason in the text? There isn't any. And then it's speaking of Satan all the way down until you get to the middle of verse 17. And then after it says, I cast you to the ground, chop. Now it's speaking of the king of Tyrus again. Why? Because Satan was never put before kings that they saw him. And if you want to include verses 18 and 19, you know, the, the, the question is, is did God bring fire from the midst of him and burn him to the ground, to ashes in the sight of men? See, it just doesn't work well. And you can't just go through the Bible and just kind of splice up verses so that it, you know, it's convenient to your view. Now, some take a literal interpretation of certain phrases or words found in the text. And this is really the strongest argument for Ezekiel 28 referring to Satan. They say, aha, Jack, but context is king and context does say these certain things. And obviously, they can't refer to the king of Tyre if you take them literally. And so how do you answer that? Don't take them literally. Just so you know, it doesn't matter what view you take. There's a whole bunch of things in here you have to believe are figurative. All commentators say, yeah, Ezekiel is saturated with figurative language, both in the far and near context. And if you take the Satan view, you have to to say this is figurative and that is figurative. And if you take the non-Satan view, you have to say this is figurative and that is figurative. The difference is this. What view do you have to spiritualize the most for? What view best fits the context? That is the issue. Now let's look at some of the phrases that seem to appear to refer to Satan. Look at verse 12. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now we know that Satan was created perfect like everything God created. And he was then rebelled against God. We know that. And you could say, okay, well, that's good. But how does that, how do we know for certain that's referring to Satan? See, that doesn't prove anything. You say, yeah, but you know, you can't go saying that the king of Tyre and his kingdom was perfect. Well, what does the context say? What does the king of all interpretive principles say? Well, let's look. You could say that this is this whole perfection business is just indicative of the exalted position of the king of Tyre, his pride thinking that his kingdom was just the greatest kingdom of earth, kind of the Muhammad Ali thing, you know, I'm the greatest. Um, that he's thinking his wealth, his protected island, and his kingdom are just perfect. Now, why would anybody say that? Well, first of all, because in Ezekiel 16, verse 14, Jerusalem is described by Ezekiel as being perfect. But even more so, if you look at Ezekiel 27, verse 2, no, verse 3, notice what it says there. And say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance to the sea, merchant of the peoples, to Many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said I am perfect in beauty. Oh. For your borders are in the heart of the seas, your builders have perfected your beauty. 
Look down at verse 11. The sons of Arvad and your army on your walls all around and the Gemedim were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They perfected your beauty, even God's commentary. So that just kind of takes out that phrase, doesn't it? Because now we have three references in the near context speaking of the same person that uses the same phrase. So not a big deal. Oh, but you say, but wait, what about verse 13? Look there. Um, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Aha. See, that's, that's it. Not only that, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the burl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and its sockets was in you in the day you were created and they were prepared. Okay. Aha, you say, Satan was in the Garden of Eden. We know he was in the Garden of Eden from Genesis. Therefore, this could not be a reference to the king of Tyre. Unless it can be proven that Eden is being spoken of figuratively to describe some lush place like the Garden of Eden. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, we can go to the wider context of the Old Testament. We can see in Isaiah 51.3, it's figuratively, the word Eden is figuratively used to describe the restoration of the wilderness around Jerusalem when it becomes a lush forested place. We can also look in Joel chapter 2 verse 3 when Eden is used to describe the lush growth around Jerusalem which is destroyed in the day of the Lord. Yeah, someone says, that's fine for Isaiah and that's fine for Joel, but what about Ezekiel? Well, it just so happens Ezekiel uses the word Eden in several other places as a matter of fact Ezekiel uses it in Ezekiel 31 9 31 16 31 18 36 35 all figuratively to refer to lush forested areas which are like Eden oh the question is why would Ezekiel refer to the kingdom of Tyre as Eden Well, if you do a little background study, find out about what Tyre was like, you will discover that Tyre was an island half mile off the shore of the Mediterranean coast just north of Israel in what is now Lebanon. And at that time, Tyre was known for its magnificent timber industry because the whole place was just saturated with forests. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, if you were to take all the, the wood in Lebanon and burn it, it would not be a sacrifice enough for God. That was like a huge statement because the whole thing was just saturated with trees. It was lush, it was forested. It's where David and Solomon bought all their timber and lumber to build the temple. And that is why, that is how, Hiram, the king of Tyre, became so wealthy because they were buying lumber and renting craftsmen from Tyre who had the best craftsmen and the most building materials. So, now we can see, not only from the context of the Old Testament as a whole, but from Ezekiel, that Ezekiel and the other places never uses Eden in a literal way, but always figurative to describe lush forested areas of which Tyre was. Therefore, that's not a problem. Yeah, you say. But what about the precious stone stuff? 
Yeah, what about the precious stone stuff? Look, 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 every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond. You might have heard this, that Satan was kind of like a walking gem shop. <laughs> that he was just, you know, you know, like covered, kind of like the dragon in the Hobbit, with just gems all around him. You wonder where Tolkien got that idea. Here you go. But do you really think Satan is covered with stones? The most commentators, even the ones who take this view, say, no, this is figuratively speaking of his beauty. (laughs) Why don't we just apply it to the person who's mentioned in the context, the king of Tyre? But then you say, oh, but Jack, how in the world are you going to deal with the anointed cherub who covers in verse 14? I placed you on the holy mountain and walked among the stones of fire. Well, you have to realize this. If you take view two, think about this. If you take view two, that the king of Tyre is a type of Satan, you still have to explain how every one of these phrases applies to the king of Tyre. Every one. And once you do that, why apply it to Satan? See? It matches the context. He's using all of this figurative language, as we have shown. And if, and if we had more time, we could look. And by the way, if you want to look into this more, I have a whole paper I've written on this. It's big, it's detailed, and you can just submerge yourself into the pit of this study. Um, if you want, you can call the office and get it. The point is, is you say, okay, what about the, 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 the cherub thing? Well, you know what? You know how many other places anointed cherubs are mentioned in the Bible? Never. The covering cherub is never mentioned. How about the mountain of God and the stones of fire? Never mentioned. This is what is called a hapax legomena. That is the single... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, that seminary made me this way. Um, <laughs> this is a single occurrence. These things aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So you can't say, well, this means this... Well, how do you know? This is the only place it appears. You can't say, well, we know Satan is a cherub, therefore this must be referring to him. Well, how do you know he's a cherub? He's never called a cherub anywhere else. He's never called an angel. He's never called a demon. Uh, Oh. But then what happens is, is people a lot of times like to say this. Well, Jack, this is very handy for your view because obviously... All the best stuff on our view, you just spiritualize it and make it go away. And so that is not fair. Because you're just kind of just, you know, all of our biggest artillery, you're saying, well, that's figurative, which is handy for you. Well, actually, if you take view two, you have to spiritualize about ten times more material than I do. So how can you do that? You see, the the burden of proof is on those who think it refers to Satan because then you have to take all those explicit references in the near and far context of the king of Tyre and say, well, it's not the king, it's not the king, it's not the king. Or then you have to do the the contextual suicide thing and start hacking up verses with no reason to from the text. I just can't do that. I just can't do that. So... 
Then you have to do deal with phrases, okay, I cast you to the ground and put you before kings and all of these other phrases in there which couldn't literally refer to Satan. So you have to spiritualize them anyways in the text. So you're spiritualizing a lot more. So if you wondered why in our talk of angels and demons and Satan that I never talked about Satan referred to him as Lucifer. And you thought, oh, he forgot one of his names. No, he didn't. Um, if you ever wonder why I didn't talk about the five I wills of the king of Babylon, um, if you ever uh, didn't wonder why I didn't mention the uh, Satan as the anointed cherub who covers, you know what? Now, you know, now, you know, um, and you know what? You can disagree with me and you can still get to heaven. You'll get your right view later. But that is, that's, that's, that's just a nutshell of why I believe what I believe. But you know what? This is the, although we spent the most amount of time on this, this is the least important thing. You can still get to heaven and have either of the views or any one of the three views. Um, but we want to talk about something a little bit more important, a little bit more relevant, I think, to our lives. And that is, can you make demon stuff pie out of a Christian? Can a Christian be demon possessed? We talked about earlier that demon possession is when one or more demons inhabits a person and totally controls them from within. Can that happen to a Christian? Fred Dickinson, who's supposed to be an expert on this subject, says in his work, Demon Possession of the Christian, quote, having researched the evidence in a broad fashion by proper proper application of both biblical and clinical parameters, we may come to the valid conclusions that Christians can be demonized, end quote. Later in his book, he goes on to say, quote, we must note that those who deny that Christians can be demonized generally are those who have not have counseling experience with the demonized. Their stance is largely theoretical. What he's saying there is, listen, you can't go to the Bible and actually answer the question. You've got to have some experiences with some demon-possessed people in your office. And remember, we talked about that in detail. I'm not going to go on that. If you weren't here for the rest of the series, Satan is willing to give you experiences in order to deceive you. And of course, the Bible is the sole authority for all doctrine. Not experience. Not clinical research. Definitely not. When I read those who say they have experience uh, with Christians being demon-possessed, I like to ask this question, how do you know they're Christians? How do you know? You see, that is a huge question, isn't it? I mean, the pastors here would love to know for certain if someone was saved. (laughs) We beg God to tell us. We have somebody come into the office, they say they're Christians, and in their life, they live like an unbeliever. Are they saved or not? Oh, it's such a nightmare. Do you know why it's a nightmare? It's a nightmare because we have to give them counsel. You know what? If they don't know Christ, the counsel is repent and believe. But if they're a Christian, they have the Holy Spirit in them. They have everything pertaining to life and godliness. No temptation will overcome them, but such as common to man. They have all the resources they need. All we need to do is show them the word of God, encourage them, help them apply, get them some ways to 
figure out the text, disciple them, and they will grow out of that sin that they're entangled in. But if they aren't a Christian, they only sin. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. There are sons of disobedience, children of hell. They're just blind to the spiritual truth. They can't understand the things of God and they cannot please God. Now that, you know, if you're going to counsel somebody, it's really good if you could tell for certain they were a Christian. I wish I had a scanner. We keep looking in the, you know, the Christian magazine to see if there's one. You know, we could just, you know, say, ah, okay, you know, poke your finger here. Oh, you're a Christian. Okay, this is the counsel for you. The problem is when people come in because they, they have a demon or whatever, they're, they're entangled in sin. So now they have this profession which says, I love the Lord, I'm a Christian. But the problem is their life says, I'm not a Christian. So the question is, how can you know for certain when somebody says, I've had experience with Christians, how do you know they're Christians? Well, you know, there are some things that can make you reasonably sure. For instance, you know, somebody professes to know Christ. That's the starting block. But 85% of Americans do that. The second thing is, is they have a clear understanding of the gospel and how one is saved by grace. They have a pastor, they have a past life experience that shows them growing in the Lord and serving the Lord and pursuing holiness. And they have a present life which shows that they are new creatures in Christ. They love God and are sensitive to the things of God and want to do what's right. Now, if you have those things, you can be reasonably sure, but you can't be absolutely certain. And so when you're reading stories of clinical evidences of Christians who have demons, assuming that they did have a demon, I just want you to know, you can't know for certain someone else is saved. You can only be reasonably certain. But you know what? You don't need clinical evidence. I don't need, you don't need to talk to anybody to know this issue because the word of God settles it crystal clear. Christians cannot be demon possessed. And let me give you seven reasons And again, I didn't, you know, these aren't seven reasons because, you know, seven is a good biblical number. It's just how many that came up. Um, Here we go. We're going to kind of race through these kind of quick because, you know, you guys probably want to have a lunch eventually. Um, You can't be demon possessed if you're a Christian because of your relationship to God. For instance, in Romans 8.15, it talks about us having the spirit of adoption. In Romans 8.16, it talks about us being children of God. In Galatians 3.26, it says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. In Ephesians 1.5, it talks about believers being predestined to adoption as sons. We're sons of God. Now, is it reasonable to say that God is going to allow a demon to take one of his children and totally control them? No. Would you let some evil guy take your child? No. No. Secondly, a Christian can't be demon-possessed because God possesses believers. You know, in Acts 20.28, when Paul is saying, be on guard for yourselves and the flock of God, you know, that God has made you overseers, he, he describes God's church as the church that God purchased with his own blood, the blood of his own son. He purchased, he owns you if you are a believer 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you have been bought with a price if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
Now, is it reasonable to assume that a demon or Satan could take one of God Almighty's possessions away from him? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I know so. Three, a Christian can't be demon-possessed because God has promised to protect them. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, Jesus describes himself as a shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hireling and is not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep. Beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and he is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen, Jesus is the good shepherd of those who are his and he's not going to let anybody, any demon snatch them. Because he is the perfect shepherd. You remember what Jesus prayed in John seventeen fifteen of those who would believe in him? I do not ask thee, speaking to the Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Do you think God answered that prayer? Sure he did. Second Thessalonians 3, 3. Paul says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you, protect you from the evil one. That's what Paul says in second Thessalonians 3, 3. In 1 John 5.18, John says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, and he who is born of God, born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I don't know how much more touched you could be than have a demon dwelling in you and totally controlling you. That's about as touched as you could get. What do these verses teach us? God is the one who is actively protecting believers from the evil one. It just says it flat out. Four, a Christian can't be demon-possessed because they abide in Christ. Romans 6.11, Romans 8.1, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have, been, have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And again, all these verses I'm giving you are just samples, by the way. Now, if a believer is in Christ... And the demon is in the believer, then what does that mean? Can a demon be hidden with Christ in God? No. But if you say, well, Jack, that, that, that's, demon possession is a spatial thing that's uh, where they inhabit the physical bodies of believers now, but being in Christ is a positional thing and it's a spiritual thing and it's not talking spatially. Okay, let's move on. Five, a Christian can't be demon-possessed because of Christ's abiding present in the individual persons of believers who live in time and space, you could say. In Romans 8.10, and if Christ is in you, 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourself to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Colossians 1.27, to whom God willed to make known the what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Are you mean to tell me that Christ is in me? Some demon wants to come in too, and he's going to, you know, they're going to share our apartment? Come on. Six, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed because the Holy Spirit abides in every true believer. The scriptures teach that all believers are born by the Spirit. John 3, 
3 through 6, and are all baptized by one spirit into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, the idea of our bodies are, are a temple. You are a temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now, is God going to let a demon inhabit his temple? After believing the gospel message, all believers, it says, are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. I'm telling you, once you become to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and it's never leaving you. Sealing illustrates ownership, possession, and protection. You can look at Romans 8, 9-11, which talks about every true believer has God's Spirit in them. If they don't have God's Spirit in them, they aren't Christ's. But every true believer has the Spirit who indwells them individually. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You mean to tell me a demon's going to come in there with the Holy Spirit in there, with Christ in there? Not on your life. Not on your life. Seven, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed because they are responsible and able to obey God. What do I mean by that? I mean this. When you come to Christ, you're giving everything you need to live for God. Everything you need to live for God. There is nothing that you need to obey God that is lacking. You have all sufficient grace for every good deed. Neil Anderson, though, um, so-called expert in this field, resorts to clinical evidence in his book, The Brondage Breaker, to support his view. He says, quote, as a believer, Sheila had obviously lost control in her eating habits. In her sexual behavior, in her devotional life, she wasn't growing spiritually. She was shrinking. She didn't sing, read the scriptures because she couldn't sing and read the scripture. She was blocked from doing so because of spiritual bondage. Really? End quote. Bruce Jackson in Alliance Life in an article entitled Hope for Those in Bondage says, quote, I began to learn through the scriptures and through insights prompted by the Holy Spirit how Satan is destroying people. In counseling, I had encountered people who could not get over certain besetting sins or degrading situations, end quote. Bruce, of course, is relying not merely on the scriptures, but on insights. He's receiving direct revelation from God who's telling him, oh, this person's saved, but they have a demon. His counseling experiences have told him so. Anderson really goes into off the doctrinal error fence when he says this, quote, many Christians today who cannot control their lives in some area, cannot control their lives in some area, wallow in self-blame instead of acting responsibly to solve the problem. But, you know, I always, when I read that, I think, well, how can they act responsibly if they can't help it? They berate themselves and punish themselves for not having the willpower to break a bad habit. But instead, they should be resisting Satan in an area where he has obviously robbed them of control. Well, Neil, if they're robbed of control, how can they control the situation? He goes on to say, anything bad which you cannot stop doing or anything good which you cannot make yourself do could be an area of demonic control, end quote. Listen, what does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 say? No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear up or dur up under it. That's what God says. 
Second Peter 1.3 says, Seeing his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, so you can obey him in any way that you need to. Philippians 2, 12-13 talks about God working in us to do his will and his good pleasure. James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted and carried away by his own lust. In other words, you're never, ever to blame your sin on a Satan's or demons. It's always your fault. Well, listen, if you're totally being controlled by a demon from within, then hey, I can't help it. The demon made me. See, and this is what happens. People come into my office and say, well, yeah, I've got this problem and I've got a demon. No, you've got rebellion. Now, if you don't know Christ, then yes. Satan is the master of your life. He is your Lord and you are held captive by him to do his will. But if you know Christ, no temptation. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Each one is tempted and carried away by his own lust. Listen to what Romans 6, 17 and 18 says. But thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That is what a Christian is. So, why can't a believer be demon-possessed? One, because of a believer's relationship to God. Two, God's possession of the believer. Three, God's protection of the believer. Four, the believer's abiding presence in Christ. Five, Christ abiding in them. Six, the Holy Spirit abiding in them. And seven, they are responsible and able to obey God in every situation. That's why. Now, if you're out there thinking, well, Jack, whew, that is a lot of stuff. You ain't just a kid. And I even had to cut some out to have mercy on you. Uh, so, if you're out there, though, and you're thinking to yourself, Jack, I'm just, um, you know, I don't know what to say about this, because when I look at my life, I, I, I see I'm out of control. I've never been in control. I've never been able to even have any victory over sin in my life. I, I may get rid of one sin and I adopt another and my whole life just seems like I'm enslaved. Well, you may need Christ. You may need to give your life to Christ for the first time. You may need the Holy Spirit within you. You may need regeneration, transformation to become a new creature, to be born again. And that may be your problem. And when you do that, then God will give you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. And again, it doesn't mean that you instantly become perfect, but you have everything you need to become perfect. There's no longer an excuse anymore. You're freed from sin and you become a slave of righteousness. And that begins to work out by God's grace in your life. Okay, enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we're able to look at today. And Father, I know that um, some of these issues do not have a lot of eternal consequence father uh, we just want to honor you we want to understand your word we want to just look up every doctrine and every view and hunt it all down in your word we want to be bereans we want to handle accurately the word of truth we want to be able to minister to people accurately and father i just thank you that your word is so clear that christians cannot be demon possessed it would be an impossibility there are just too many things that stand in the way it's such a good security to know that we are yours and the evil one does not touch us. And Father, we also want to just pray for those here who might not know you. If they don't, I pray that they would cry out, trusting in Jesus to save them, relying on his death, 
his blood shed on the cross and his resurrection power that they would trust in that alone to save them and that you by your grace would save them and make them new. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.